1: Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.
2: Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as someone with two teenage sons, so I know what it's like to have a tall, angry creature in your life. But in my spare time, I'm just a reporter, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about power change and the people you need to know around tech and media. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is Jeanette Winterson, the author of several beloved books, including Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit and The Stone Gods. Her newest novel is called *Frankenstein: a love story. It's about artificial intelligence, sex dolls, cryogenic freezing, gender, and what happens when homo sapiens are no longer the smartest beings on the planet. It's perfect for Silicon Valley these days. Jeanette, welcome to Recode Decode. Oh, thank you. So I remember saying I'm a huge fan of your work for a long, long time, and I was thrilled that you were writing in an area that I know a little bit about, um, and especially using uh, fiction to do so. Um, Why don't you talk a little bit about your background and how you've sort of focused your career over time? Because you've moved from topic to topic, but I think You write sometimes about technology and and gender fluidity and other things like that. But this really is at the heart of what's happening right now in our society. You sort of hit the Mm -hmm. perfect moment. So tell me how you got here to this.
3: 35 years I've been working now. And of course, when my first novel, Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit, came out in 1985, there weren't uh, really many books with positive gay characters mm-hmm, in As them, I know. Um, that were also ambitious. So from the beginning, I've wanted to look at how we understand gender, mm-hmm. how we understand identity, how we position ourselves as humans, both in the world and in the universe. Mm-hmm. And of course, now, 35 years later, I'm interested in how those questions will change, will have to change because we're about to share the planet with self-created non-biological life forms and that really questions everything to do with gender, with identity with how we place ourselves in the world and the larger universe so the questions remain the same because I think when you're you're interested in things when you're driven by things, you go on stalking them from every angle all Mm -hmm. your life, but as you grow and as the world changes then you get different intriguing answers to those questions and of course you get more questions right. which is one of the things I love. I'm much more interested in more questions sure. than I am in the answers. What moved you towards the
2: technological thing? Did you Were you watching things from because uh, w- you were a pioneer in writing about this topic I remember reading Orange Isn't the Only mm-hmm. Fruit because so much as you said of depictions of gay characters were so negative or mm-hmm. so either suicidal or drunk or mm-hmm. weird or or side project kind of thing. And this, the, the positive dictions are one thing, but how did you move into, and I, I don't want to get away from the fact that gay people actually were from some of the first people to use technology mm. to reach out to each other, which was, you know, early planted out, all kinds of things on totally, it. Totally, well, yeah. Were you a technological person, or was there any kind of like, were you paying
3: attention to it the whole time, or not? I'm paying attention because I'm very curious about the world, and I don't mm-hmm. want to get left behind. Right. You know, I mean, one of the worst things you can do, I think, is to be be passive and say mm-hmm. somebody else will work that out for me. Right. Um, and especially now, we need to be part of the crucial conversations. <laughs> so for myself, um, for the last five years or so, I've just been reading things. You know, whether it's been Ray Kurzweil uh, mm-hmm. talking about at the singularity, right, Mike Tegmark over at MIT. Um, I've been trying to understand what's going on scientifically In the world, looking at what Google, Amazon, Facebook are up to, Uh, and of course it was anchored for me in something very particular. In that, you know, after the Second World War, uh, Alan Turing at Bletchley Park, all of that, all that computing know-how, which was in its infancy, moved to the University of Manchester, Mm -hmm. and I was born in Manchester. That's where it kind of all starts. It did. Yeah. So Turing's a critical character. Turing is absolutely yeah.
2: Also, uh, you know, very persecuted for being gay. Just for being gay. Despite his incredibly heroic work yeah that changed the face of the world essentially. Yeah.
3: Absolutely, and I, you know, I was interested that it was his colleague uh, at Bletchley Park, Jack Good, who then moved out to the United States and did so partly because he was disgusted at the way the British government had treated Alan Turing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was Jack Good who came up with the phrase "our final invention." Uh, you know, he was the advisor to Stanley Kubrick on 2001: mm-hmm. t- A Space Odyssey with HAL, the murderous computer, and he always said, "Look, it's not a question of if we develop a superior artificial intelligence; it's mm-hmm. when." Right. and he called it the last invention and that was in 1965 you right. know that guy was really looking ahead and now we're here right and so how do what, how do you regard technology as a,
2: as a writer of fiction I know a lot of TV has been and movies have been far ahead on science fiction sure. like you were talking about Kubrick and so many movies there's been mm. dozens and dozens of movies most of them dystopian futures whether it's Terminator or sort of popular stuff like that or you know even more esoteric movies it's always mm. sort of a negative and obviously Ray Bradbury was writing about about this, Time Machines and and H.G. Wells and things like that. How do you approach it from being a fiction writer?
3: I'm glad you brought up um, Bradbury and Wells. You know, I was always thinking and reading at the time Philip K. Dick. Mm -hmm. um, You know, those those, uh, really, they're like flash fictions, aren't they? The short stories in particular. Um, and, And as you say, dystopian visions. I don't see that it has to be that way. Right. Because at the minute, all tech is a tool. Mm-hmm. It's not superior to us. We, we use it. Even though algorithms and number crunching uh, is far in excess of what humans can manage, those things are still our tools. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not calling the, the shots. fire would be, yeah. Yeah, that will change. I think tech as a tool is really useful to us. And I'm not in any sense somebody who wants to go back in time and say, oh, the world was better. So you're not
2: one of those, like, you you meet a lot of fiction writers or older genres saying, oh, this tech stuff has ruined how we read books, it's ruined how we watch television, it's ruined how we do this and that.
3: I don't think that's true. I think also you can you can choose the elements of your life that you wish to include. In, mm-hmm. Most writers have a degree of privilege, so you can bring in what you want to bring in and leave sure. out what you want to bring out. Sure, I'm an analog human. You know, I was born long before the digital revolution, so the, I can't change that. And I know I'm an analog human. Um, and yet I love what is happening out there in the sense of connectivity. Although, you know, we've seen trolling and hate speech on the internet, fake mm-hmm. news. Right. Um, also, the demolition of our democracies. That doesn't mean that the tools themselves are malign it means the way we're using them right. is, is childish mainly
2: Well, Childish, too, and it gives. they have a certain virality and weaponization that wasn't possible before. A book could only reach one person at a time. This can reach a million different ears with a million different messages, many of which are not factual. So let's talk talk a little bit about the book itself, how it came together. Um, Obviously, you're basing it on uh, Mary Shelley's fantastic. We should talk about someone who was way before her time when you think about that Mm. book. Talk a little bit about that book and then how the sort of the basics of this book, so people who
3: Mm. haven't. Well, I was reading Mary Shelley's Frankenstein again because it was the the 200th anniversary of the publication mm-hmm. and, um, in, in 2018.
2: Incredible.
3: 200th, wow. Yeah, and, and of course she was only 18 when she wrote it. Mm-hmm. You know, we often forget that people's lives were shorter and so they were more compressed and compact. You couldn't say, I'll do it later because there was no right, later. Right. Uh, she was dead at 53. Um, so she wrote this book, Astonishingly, uh, when she was on holiday on on Lake Geneva uh, with her partner, the poet Percy Shelley, Lord Byron, a few others... And she, of course, she's invented the world's most most famous monster. But mm-hmm. when I was rereading it, I began to see all the other things that are in that book that I'd forgotten about because it was many years previously. She's obsessed with the idea of education because, of course, uh, Victor Frankenstein doesn't educate his monster, right? And that is part of the problem. The monster is shut out of the the source and the course of human knowledge and has to learn for himself. And this is part of his own malignity uh, because he's not taught. And I thought, wow, you know, we. Re- we really really need to think about how we are educating our machines. Right. You know, machine learning is a real issue because we we teach machines by feeding them data. Right. But what is the data that we are feeding them? I always say crap in, crap out. Absolutely. And of course, once it goes into a machine, it looks both objective and amplified. Mm -hmm. So because machines are neutral, right? But Mm -hmm. of course, machines are not neutral. And I think the biggest question facing us as human beings and it's something that mary shelley brings up is how are we going to educate these new life forms right because you know? they're not always I, just going I to be to re- machines i haven't
2: reread that book you're right i didn't even know, remember that part of it I yeah mean, i think the 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 myth of frankenstein has taken over everything the movies the the idea of what frankenstein, oh the hammer horror yeah right. the guy
3: with the bolt through his neck and the big boots
2: right 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 did you come away with the idea of talking about what frankenstein is now or how to how, what monsters were creating did
3: you- I, I suddenly saw that there was a way of bringing the two things together and I, I wanted to recreate uh, Mary Shelley's voice experience a- around writing the book and mm-hmm. what might happen later. Yes, which you do. Yeah, so I wanted to really uh, give that to the reader so that they could seat themselves in that period and feel comfortable there. And at the same time, join it up because to me... So when I read it, it felt like a message in a bottle. Mm-hmm. She'd thrown this thing overboard 200 years ago and it had washed up on our shores now and we are the first people who can read it differently because right. we are going to share the planet mm-hmm. but our life forms will be created not out of the discarded and rotting parts of the graveyard and the charnel mm-hmm. house but the zeros and ones of code. Right. But it, it, it was well a put. fantastic vision mm-hmm. and now we see that.
2: Can you talk just a little bit about why you think she had this vision? She's 18 years old, mm-hmm. she's in Switzerland, she's on a vacation which you depict in the book, the beginning of the book, actually. Yeah. Where did she get this from? Where do you imagine? Because this is an incredibly creative idea at the time. Mm. Well, there is a lot of thinking about the future during this time. Not this much. Mm. This seemed like almost channeled from the future.
3: Yes, in a way, it does feel like that. I mean, she was living um, in the early industrial revolution. Right. So it's really the first modern moment. You know, it's the moment when we get fossil fuels out of the ground, and mm-hmm. we know where that's taken us now. Um, she was really aware that machines were being created that would do the work of human beings. Mm -hmm. Uh, She'd been up to Manchester, you know, my my birthplace, birth of the Industrial Revolution, foremost city in Europe at the time. Um, And she'd seen what would happen. And also, she'd she'd heard new vocabulary coming in, like mind the machine, a pair of hands. Mm -hmm. You know, we didn't have this before. Suddenly human beings are reduced to their body parts uh, and they're in service to the machine. So she knew about that. She'd also, in London, because her father, William Godwin, important political radical, had everybody round to his house because in those days, society was small. If you knew everybody, they all came. Poets, philosophers, scientists, physicians crowded into his tiny little house. Um, She knew about the the beginnings of electricity. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, uh, the wild Italian Signor Galvani, from where we get the word galvanized, had come over. Uh, And he was able to make a weak charge through a metal electrode. And he was sticking it into frogs, and the frogs were leaping about. Mm -hmm. And then he got prisoners the last time before they were hanged at Newgate Jail. If you were hanged, your body immediately went for dissection. Mm -hmm. No arguments. Uh, He got some of these guys, as soon as they'd been hanged, started sticking his electrodes into them. And Mary Shelley, this young girl, what them as their eye opened again or a hand raised as if to clutch someone else. Dead um, people. Yeah. yeah. So all of this was swirling around in her mind, the beginnings of electricity. And she was absolutely right that electricity was going to be the discovery that was the game changer. 100%. It Co- still yeah. is. And I always, it
2: still is. Yeah. <laughs> and we talk, uh, you know, everyone's like, oh, the internet does this. Like, Without electricity, we're all nothing. Like, none of it works. I mean, eventually we'll have batteries and solar and this and that. Yeah. But it's a really interesting point to make because yeah. electricity plays such a big part of it, but electricity at the time was the internet. Uh, I, something I always talk about when people talk about the internet, because people talk about it as a thing constantly, mm. um, you don't talk about electricity like that. You mm. don't say, today on the electrical grid, I <laughs> I I, I, I blue-dry my hair. You know, Thank you for the electrical grid. We don't ever discuss it. It's just there yeah. in the background, which is where the internet needs to go in terms of as a topic, but it keeps sort of rising to the forefront sure. as, as a monster, really, in some ways. Yes. So talk a little bit about how you conceived this idea. So talk a little bit about book right now. So you have a character, you have a a gender fluid character named, uh, go ahead, explain. Oh,
3: with Rice Shelley, yeah. Well, I I wanted, I took the characters on Lake Geneva, Mm -hmm. um, the people who were there, and I thought, all right, I'm just going to move them 200 years, and then what will I do with them? So right. we'll meet them again, but in 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 different shapes, forms, and, and guises, because I was just using the basic idea that why should consciousness be obliged to materiality? Mm-hmm. It's the moment when religion and science come together, really, because religion's always been saying, ah, oh, you're more than your body. You know, there's some essence of you that will go somewhere else when you die. Amazingly now, science is saying, well, you know, this, this biological body, it's provisional, it's temporary. It's we can get past that. We can yeah. upload you consciousness later. Mm -hmm. We'll get there. Um, So I thought, okay, well, let's just upload this lot from Lake Geneva in 1815. Let me bring them into the now and who will they be? And I thought, well, who will Mary Shelley be? And I thought, such a shapeshifter, somebody who was bigger than herself. I thought, she would not like to be confined by gender. So I gave her a double gender. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I'll make her into this young trans doctor called so Rye Mary. Shelley. So it's from, yeah. Mary, from Mary. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, because there's a, there's a huge argument at one point with the rather boorish Lord Byron yeah. character who comes to be Ron Lord who can't understand that Rye is trans. Uh, right, and, are you and, a man or are you a woman yeah, or are this? Yeah, and yeah. in the end, Rye really exasperated, says, look, it's not short for Ryan, it's short for Mary, mm-hmm. uh, and brings in their past life. Sure.
2: So, you have that character, you have Victor Stein, who's yeah. sort of a TED Talk, uh, sort of glib person who's creating these things.
3: Yeah, he works learning. in machine learning. Machine learning. Yeah.
2: And, uh, and his, what did he represent to you? The ideas of where things are, or inventing things without consequence. That's what it
3: is. Yes, I guess that's right. Because, and it's not, you know, this isn't blaming scientists, inventors, uh, uh, Anybody, you know, working in these areas. It's simply to say that we don't put in protocols mm-hmm. uh, until it's too late. Well, you know, that's my yeah. thing. <laughs> and business loves this because they say, oh, right. no, you're going to strangle innovation. Grow, grow, grow until but without consequence. You know, we can't, we should know better by now. Mm-hmm. You know, there are things that we could put in place to right. protect people. So, yeah, Victor Stein is somebody who's uh, committed, sincere, also slightly sinister. Lots mm-hmm. of sincere people are slightly sinister. Well, I, I agree find. with
2: you. You know, it was interesting. I thought, does she know the people I cover? Like, it's, it was a very good a depiction of the with you know, I always say Silicon Valley doesn't do consequence. Consequence mm. is something they don't even or anticipation no. of consequences or the possibility of consequences. Mm. And this character just is a, the arrogance, sort of the arrogance and brilliance at the same time, but without any sense of what could happen.
3: Yes. Yes. And I've been thinking about Robert Oppenheimer, you know, because the, the Manhattan Project, something that's always interested me very much, the d- development of the mm-hmm. atomic bomb, what happens when you split the atom, right. that crucial moment, and all the people involved and how it impacted not just on their lives, but on the whole world from there on in. Um and I wanted to, I, I just wanted to show, give a character in the book and just let the reader decide whether or not we should therefore have protocols and restrictions.
2: Right. Yeah. Right, exactly. Although Robert Oppenheimer said, I have become death. He understood. He did understand. He was yeah. a reflective person. And yeah. what I always say in Silicon Valley, it's a miracle they can see. Speaking, speaking of another monster, Dracula, they can see in mirrors because they have no ability to reflect on anything
3: <laughs> they've done. <laughs> That's but, brilliant. But, and of course, you're right, because we don't know what's going on in Unit 8 at Facebook or or yeah. Google X, um, right? You know, and I think the breakthroughs are going to come not not from government fundings, but from some private company. Whoever gets there first, right. will make the big breakthrough. And then we're stuffed because well, they I do think what the we leap
2: like. to the body is what it was most interesting. Is because I've just yeah. been talking about this a lot. You know, everyone talks about wearables and this and that, but the idea of leaping to the body, where we will have ectoskeletons where things will be embedded in us. Mm. Um, you, you you do it through the character of this Ron Lord, and then we'll we'll break and talk
3: more about that. But talk about Ron. Ron Lord, because he's my favorite character. I love Ron Lord, which was a surprise to me, because I thought, who can Lord Byron be? And I thought, I'll just play him with the name. I thought, I'll make him Ron Lord with a name like that. So, you know, he's a bit of a wide boy. He's made a fortune by accident out of Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And he thinks, oh, I'll invest it in a sex doll factory. Because when he was lonely and sad, he bought his own sex doll, put it together, you know, like Lego for Mm grown-ups, and found that it fulfilled a need for him, which might fulfill a need for others. So he's, you know, he's crude in some ways. He's a caricature, but he also goes on a journey and by the end we kind of love him Mm -hmm. because he gets it Uh, but I needed I needed a character in there who would say a lot of the things you know now that people actually want to say or <laughs> say to themselves, but right. are not saying out loud right. about about sex, about relationships, <laughs> about the backlash against feminism, about where women come in tech if they come anywhere at all? Because right. as we know, of the you know the global number of people working in tech, only twenty percent of those people are female. Well, in much smaller actually. Yeah. And if that you is really a huge problem.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And yeah. so the character of
3: making sex robots, which is,
2: I think, removing humanity from. The process of mm. something that is about communication—the ultimate
3: communication—I mm. agree. I mean, I think that I, I would not want a relationship with a sex bot. And then I say to myself, "But if you have a little bot running around the house, and we all will, we will make a relationship with it because right. look, anybody's ever fallen in love with their teddy bear, which is all of us. We know that we can get very fond of uh, right. something which isn't certainly isn't biologically alive." Right. But we have a relationship with it. We're all going to do this. It might be sexual. It might be emotional. But we will make significant attachments to non-biological Already, I Already. Yeah. The best relationship I've ever had is with my phone. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we're here with Jeanette Winterson. She's one of my favorite authors. She's the author of a really fascinating book called Frank Kistein, A Love Story. We're going to take a quick break now. We'll be back after this.
0: This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there
2: We're here with Jeanette Winterson. She's the author of Frankenstein, a love story. She's also the author of many books, including Oranges uh, Are Not the Only Fruit and many others. We're talking about artificial intelligence, sex dolls, cryogenic freezing, gender, and what happens when Homo sapiens are no longer the smartest beings on the planet. So here we have all these characters, and they're sort of interacting on every major topic, artificial intelligence. Talk about each of them, artificial intelligence. What were you trying to get at there? And also cryogenic freezing, which I, <laughs> is my favorite.
3: Yeah, I think, well, just- just thinking about it, with cryogenic freezing, I think that's going to turn out to be like the cassette tape of technology. It's, it's, you know, <laughs> we're not going to be interested in that soon. <laughs> no no head, head frozen. <laughs> all those I mean, but, what do you need it for? What do you need we're your not gonna body need for? It. We're not right. going to need right. it. Right, The
2: body's provisional. I love that idea. Yeah,
3: so do I. And it, because I was brought up in a religious Pentecostal in a gospel tent, you know, the idea that the body is just your home for now, but mm-hmm. it isn't the essence of you. Mm-hmm. And it's always been there. So with the, the problem with cryogenics of course, you can have your head taken off and you can have it vitri- vitrified mm-hmm. but it's in the revival of the tissue where the damage comes it's when we start heating tissue up not when we cool it down right. that the problems start so I don't personally, I don't think cryogenics is a viable technology. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, as the cryogenic people say, look, at least you've got a chance. You know, once you're in the ground or you've, you've been cremated, you got no right. chance. Right. Good point. But going forward, if Ray Kurzweil's right, and he thinks we do this in 50 years, which is massively ambitious, mm-hmm. if you can upload the contents of your consciousness... Yeah, what do you need the body for? Get a new one. You won't need it. Yeah, you'll just... you can. It'll be... You know all those great myths about shape-shifting? Today I'm an eagle, tomorrow I'm a greyhound, and the mm-hmm. next day I'm you... All of those stories now having a basis in science, I love that. And it
2: is actually a basis in religion, the idea of body of Christ. Totally. It doesn't matter. You're you're not eating the body of Christ, but it's the idea of of constant reinvention of the human body, but not necessarily the body. Um, The same thing with the idea of artificial intelligence, how you create robots that are like people. Can you talk a little bit of this idea? Because I thought this was an interesting thing in the book. It was, I've always thought, everyone's always like, "When well, how are robots going to be like people? But what about when people are like robots? And mm. that's where I think you went into, which I think was much smarter, because we spent a lot of time trying to humanize robots. Or when they open mm. a door, we go, oh my God, well, a toddler can open a door. Right? It's not like, <laughs> you know, we, we celebrate robotic activity but it's more the what i think you were talking about in this book more is the idea of people turning into that Mm -hmm. like or or morphing with them
3: yes we'll have to i think i mean this is something ellen musk talks about Mm that if homo sapiens has got any chance as a a separate species it will it will have to be an augmented species this will have to be accelerated evolution for us in in the biological self um And I I completely see that because otherwise we will have um, an artificial intelligence which is smarter but isn't body dependent. You know, it doesn't eat, it doesn't sleep. It can take as long as it likes on any particular task. It's not Mm -hmm. mortal, it's not bound by gravity and it doesn't even need to breathe which Mm -hmm. is why artificial intelligence for space travel is such a good idea because you don't need gravity, you don't need oxygen and you've got plenty of time so you can explore the solar system. But for us, I think smart implants definitely will happen they'll be essential I know it's going to be like those old TV programs of the Bionic man right you know, right yeah where you' a, a, a bit I, like I, the I Bionic used to love woman that show yeah she was
2: adorable yeah um, but talk about that because the idea of right now Elon Musk talks a lot about this, yeah. these neural networks uh Facebook has bought a company that can mm. read brains and stuff yeah. like that do you would you want to do that and then what does it open up? You know, from a, well, from a fictional point of view, it opens up all kinds of stories of what mm-hmm. we would become. But when you're mixing it with gender fluidity, I was surprised how you did that. I th- I hadn't thought of it that way mm. because people that are gender fluid, they are, do feel uncomfortable in the bodies they're in. And the idea that you could not just shift them in the way we do today, but completely Become other beings.
3: Yes, is kind it's of exciting, isn't it? Idea. Yeah, it
2: is. It, it is. is,
3: and I like that idea. Some of it's very freeing because it will destroy our obsession with the binary, which right. I, th- I think is isn't both negative and outmoded now. You know, the whole binary. Well, explain is, that. But, well, particularly of male female. We've been so hung up on it for so long. We love binaries: black, <laughs> white, right, wrong, rich, right. poor, male, female. Um, it's a way of labeling the world. It's quick. It's handy, but. Once you get past the obvious, it's actually restrictive and often hurtful for people Mm -hmm. to be labeled in those ways, you know, whatever ways they are. Whatever identifiers. Yeah. And so I I think if certainly if we're going to start a making relationships with non-biological entities that are not male or female, we can label them that way. But at Mm -hmm. least we'll see what we're doing. Then that will question uh, our obsessions with the binary. It will also mean that for ourselves, if it becomes much easier to change identity, and I think it will, Mm -hmm. then... This should, I hope, get rid of a lot of prejudice, a lot of homophobia, a lot of transphobia, and allow people to t- outside of the small, narrow spaces that we too often live in. It does, in. though, have a persnickety persistence,
2: you know what I mean, in terms <laughs> of—I'm was, i getting married again, and I was looking at oh, some weddings. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. And I was looking at the sites, and they're still persistently straight, for example. I know. Persistently, I know. in a way that's just like— like everyone plays along with it. And mm. I know so many people who aren't like that anymore, like yeah. in the traditional sense, but it's, I've sort of been riveted looking at websites and, and their real weddings they're showing and things
3: like that. And it's sort of like, ah. I know. We're not moving as fast as I thought we would. But then <laughs> on the other hand, they think, look, when I was growing up, in the 1960s, nobody knew anybody where I came from mm-hmm. who was a single parent or who'd been divorced. Right. Or was gay uh, yeah. Or who trans. was, you know, even somebody who was black, and they mm-hmm. certainly didn't know anybody who was gay. Mm-hmm. So think everybody knows somebody like that. Now, mm-hmm. Everybody. Right. And that has changed. And so I'm thinking, well, maybe in another 50 years, what we you know, where all the uncomfortable edges where we are now, especially around trans identity, that too will have moved on. Oh, Look, providing, of course, we've got a planet for anything to move on with. Right. I mean, climate breakdown is, of course, the game changer here. Mm-hmm. There may be no um, third wave of intelligence because
2: unless we get into bodies
3: that can sustain it. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So,
2: would you do this? Would you? Would you be in another body or be a body that's not yours? It's
3: yeah, I would, and I might regret it, mm-hmm. but I wouldn't. I wouldn't be able to help myself. It would be just too interesting and exciting. I'd have yeah. to do it. Right. And certainly, look, if I was going to drop dead in five years and somebody said, well, we'll upload your consciousness or you can just die, um, I'd say, okay, let's do it. Yeah. And then, of course, it's tricky because I'm not in my body. I'm not in my context. Mm-hmm. What of me is uploaded? Right. And then when I'm in your laptop, because you have very kindly uploaded me, <laughs> <laughs> kindly. then I have to trust you to download me into something else. And right. that's where it gets tricky. Where would you like
2: to be down- Downloaded
3: into, <laughs> like if you were
2: this monster, what would you what would you like? Do you know, to
3: I'd like to I'd like to have more than one option. That's what I think is so exciting. Shifting, yeah, that you really could be the shapeshifter right. that all the shamans have dreamed about and told us could happen. Uh-huh. Um, but again, I'd have to trust you because you could send me off every day. Be you know, be the the the, the biggest crime racket anywhere, wouldn't it? i Think it? that's you... the plot of Rick and Morty. My kids <laughs> yeah. it. I think it
2: is a little bit. Talk a little bit about the monster, this Frankenstein. Who is the monster in this book, from your
3: perspective? There isn't one. There right. isn't a Mary That's Shelley's it. monster that is created. Mm-hmm. Um, what there is, the, the, the monstrousness in the book is c- the continual threat of what's going to happen if we don't get it right. Right. Um, and it's damage to us in the large sense as human beings on this planet, wh- what happens. And what happens to us in the human sense about how we manage to love. Because love isn't in good shape at the moment. Mm-hmm. It's taking a battering from every side. Right. Um, and I mean love both in the sense of two people trying to love each other of whatever gender, but I mean also loving the biggest sense of mercy and compassion, mm-hmm. tolerance, kindness, the things that we thought marked us out as humans. Right. And I wonder if they will continue to mark us out as humans, especially as, you know, we try to teach machines to learn our values. Would we include those values I'm not sure.
2: Mm -hmm. So, how do they learn that then? So, you've talked a lot about the idea of what tech has done, the damage recently. So, in your estimation, it seems like it's it's humanity doing this. Oh, definitely.
3: Everything comes back to us at the moment Mm -hmm. because we're still top of the tree. Mm -hmm. And I think when we do, if we get general artificial intelligence, so that machines are not tools, they are. completely independent. Thinking on their own phone. and they're yeah. making decisions. Self-reflecting, upgrading. Uh, they'll be very hard to kill. How do you kill it? We don't know because it can replicate itself anywhere. It can mm-hmm. just slip out into your phone. I'd be right. busy unplugging it here and it's already gone into your right. phone. Mm-hmm. So that's going to be tricky. But That's like Thanos in the mind I know. It is. He I know. moving from place to yeah. place. Yeah. And there's going to be no Faraday cage in the world that's going to be able to contain this. Uh-huh. You know, people talk about you will invent it and we won't let it connect to the internet. That's, that, that's just <laughs> fanciful, really. Right. It's going You know, it's going to be out there. But at that point, what values matter? And I think if we're so bad at what what used to be called ordinary human values of compassion, kindness, tolerance, um, recognition of others. Then, what Empathy. do we teach our machines? Mm-hmm. How do you teach an empathetic machine? How how would you
2: imagine we solve that problem? Because part of this is this when you were talking about Mary Shelley, this idea, this monster was not educated and therefore was not at fault. Uh, for the th- in fact, Victor Frankenstein is the one at fault, and the the creator is at fault. Definitely. What do we need to do to Cause that or is it possible because, you know, most of the people who created are the same homogeneous group of people who have brought Mm. us, you know, misinformation, the same people who have brought us where we are today with a lot of the tools of the internet, which many people... In theory, it's a great idea of communication of the world being one. The, all the all the major themes of the internet are all good ones mm. or, or good ideas. It's sort of a Star Trekian version of mm. the future, and we're kind of in the Star Wars version. Which yeah, is we really are. Dark. Yeah. like I, I yeah. always say, someone's in tech is either a Star Trek person or a Star Wars person. And uh, because Star
3: Wars is not a, such a pleasant no. story. No, it's not. Yeah. It's not. And it's you know, it's it's the same old story of, of, of domination, um, which is something we could really do with unlearning, I think, at this this late stage <laughs> of our, uh, evolution on this planet. But I think, look, the way anybody teaches machine is just by feeding in endless amounts of data. So if you're teaching a program, say DeepMind, create, which is uh, in Britain, yeah. Um, creating, helping, doing the AlphaGo program, which now the machine can beat anybody playing AlphaGo just mm-hmm. as it already learned chess. You just put in every possible move and the machine learns it. If you show machines pictures, acts of, of kindness, of compassion, of humanitarian effort, the machine will learn that. Mm-hmm. But if you show the machine pictures of somebody being hit over the head with a trunche and dragged off to jail, and stealing from their neighbor, the machine will learn that. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we've got enough people in machine learning who Thinking about uh, emotional intelligence or ethics. They're simply thinking in terms of utility. Right. And that's, to me, that's frightening. Two reasons. You know, one is right back again, Manchester, where I come from, where, where, where the Communist Manifesto began, really, because Karl Marx. Did was,
2: everything become in, in it, Manchester? Did.
3: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Manchester is an amazing. It's like an alchemical city. You know, yes, it's, it's where in England the, you know, the anti-slavery movement yep. starts. It's where the Pankhurst start, women's suffrage. Uh-huh. It's where the trade unions movement starts. Don't get me on this because okay. we go on forever. All but right. <laughs> right back. They have a soccer team too, right? But go ahead. Yes, <laughs> I'm teasing. Yeah. I'm
2: teasing. Go ahead. I know nothing of your, oh, football, football team, football team, football. They they have all
3: of that. Yeah.
2: Um, sorry,
3: where were oh, we? Sorry,
2: machines. What, how we te- make make machines empathetic? Yeah. So
3: there's Marx wandering around with his uh, with his friend Engels, who had a small factory well run, and Engels looked at the squalor and filth generated by the first industrial revolution, people living in unspeakable conditions, and he said, "This is what happens when men regard each other." only as useful objects. Mm-hmm. So it's the moment where you do become a machine part. But where we are now is quite interesting because uh, you know you brought it up earlier about how we're becoming like machines. I think this is what happens when men regard each other only as useless objects. We're, mm-hmm. we're taking ourselves out of the picture. I don't just mean as useful citizens who do work mm-hmm. in society. I mean as... Moral agents who have created philosophy, theology, um, webs of, of kindness, of mm-hmm. progress, social justice, politics—all of that now, because we're moving to the right, seems to be disappearing. Mm-hmm. And this is a very bad time for us to be lurching back into a kind of fascism worldwide, which is what it right, is with these tools. With with tools, yeah. Mm-hmm. That we're gonna. T- what are we gonna do? Say this is the way that everybody should live in this this repressive surveillance state. Where, unless you've got a certain amount of money, you're nothing. So, you wrote in the book, The World's at the Start of Something
2: New. What Will Happen Has Begun,
3: mm.
2: in the book, which I thought was a great. Um, and there was, a, I think it was one of the reviews that says, We now have technology to redesign ourselves, but to manage it, we still need technology to understand ourselves, one fluid enough to incorporate the past and the future, the real and the imagined, one expansive enough to offer a life beyond our bodies. Winterson is reminding us, in the form of the novel, that
3: technology is already here. Mm. How do you react to that? It's here. And one of the things you can't do is change the time that you live in. You know, you can change your country, your job, your partner, even the colour of your skin, certainly your gender. Um, We have a lot of choice. None of us can do anything about the time that we live in. And I see that really directly as each individual's challenge, uh, the hand that you're dealt with. So if we're here and now, you know, right at the beginning, we discussed that, you know, you can't be passive, you can't turn away. Um, I think everybody. Has to get involved and not just think, oh great, I can go on my laptop and you know browse the channels. It's really about saying what's tech doing and is my voice being heard? Do I even have a voice in this conversation? And at present the answer is no. So we need a lot more people to be getting together to say, well, what exactly are you doing out there, Google, Amazon? Well, I try to do
2: that, but I talk about ethics and things yeah. like that. But how do you actually get that to happen? Because I sometimes I feel like the technology still beats that very mm. quickly. Whether it's and in some cases artificial intelligence is better than people shouldn't work in mines it's no they shouldn't you're quite right shouldn't work on manufacture in manufacturing for the most part robots do it better Mm. Uh, eventually when they're cheaper they can make food they can do this they can do that Mm. what happens then to the human experience of work and the idea of you know even if these choices are better for the human race it sort of does make us useless. We're not yes. a pair of hands. We don't need a pair of hands anymore, and we no. don't need the brain part. Because most things, what I always say is anything that can be digitized will be digitized. Mm. Anything, mm. everything, that everything that can be digitized. How do you create a human race that isn't like that, isn't fascist, isn't always watched mm. in that kind of
3: I think that will be impossible because, you know, as discussed with, with, with transhumanism, once the implants start going in, right. um, they're also going to contain and collect information because well, data is, is the new golden oil, as we know. <laughs> so there'll be a trade-off. Anything that we get from the big companies, you know, whether it's better working eyeballs or something <laughs> you, you can hear, suddenly you've got a little uh, implant in there monitoring your heart, your blood pressure – that data is all going to flow out to right. whoever owns it. Mm-hmm. You know, so we are going to be owned and watched, in a way which makes just CCTV in stores and on the streets just like Charles play now. We will belong to the you know the whole brother system. It's going to be there, and we're not going to be able to change that. Mm-hmm. I think all the protesting in the world won't mean that you're not watched continually. Mm-hmm. What I fear is that. Every single thought of ours will also be monitored, which would be quite easy to do. Right. So everything that you think will be known by somebody else, there'd be no such thing as privacy, which is what, you know, Mark Zuckerberg predicted. He said that right. privacy was an anachronism. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the man who buys the houses on both sides of him so that he can be private. And the man who has dinner with Donald Trump and declines to talk about what exactly. he Exactly. So they have privacy. Yeah. But the no, rest it's always it, safe yeah. for the wealthy. Unless you're completely yeah. off grid mm-hmm. uh, in every sense, life will no longer be private, even in the way that we know it is private now. That that was one of my favorite episodes of Black Mirror, the British version,
2: where they had eyeballs... um taping everything, and the guy chose to take it out eventually, so he didn't want to know his memories, which was kind of... On some level, it's kind of cool, to the idea of that is. And yet, what's really interesting, and in the next section, I do want to talk about uh, Britain today, like Mm. what's going on there. It's a very happy version, too. You're not not dystopian in this book, I don't think. I don't find it dystopian. I found it somewhat that we have an ability to maybe do the monster
3: over again. I hope we do. I think we get second chances, uh, both in our personal lives and in our larger lives in Mm -hmm. the world. And that's a saving grace for us as humans, because we make a lot of mistakes. And it takes a while for us to get things right. So I feel, you know, I feel the same with climate breakdown. I think we've still got a chance. There's still time Mm -hmm. for us to use our enormous talents, information, capacities to pull back from the craziness of what we're doing. And I feel that's true with you know, any dystopian narrative just cuts out the idea of human hope and human progress. And I'm naturally optimistic, which may be foolish. Yeah, I think so. I, do. I may. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but the trouble is I am. And <laughs>
2: yeah. Well, one of the things I was interesting. you did use the Eagles quote. I love the Eagles. I love the Eagles uh, I love too. The, I who to doesn't love there, the Eagles? Um, but we may lose them, maybe we may never be here again. It's yeah. sort of the opposite of what you were saying. You're saying we are going to be here again.
3: Yeah, but probably not in the in this uh, in this particular download. Right. You know, your, your unique identity now as you and, and mm-hmm. mine as me um, that won't be here again. Because even if you upload me and I upload you, uh, we, we're still going to be in a different body in a different time. So this part of us, this this segment of our whole life, let's say, will go. And we'll never get it back. Isn't that too many bodies then?
2: Not bodies, minds around. If all, my, if, if George Washington was still here, that would be kind of cool mm. to get, you know what I mean? If we could have uploaded George Washington Well, Ray Kurzweil
3: thinks yeah. that if you can get a bit of DNA, you might be able to bring people back, you know, like they do with mammoths uh, at present. Yeah, right. I mean, it's a terrible idea. He wants to bring back his dad, I which know. I understand. Yeah. But— Imagine all the people who'll store bits of their DNA. Well, there's
2: there's about a million boys from Brazil. You got a million like awful stories. He's a character. I (laughs) I ran into him at one point. He was at Google and I know his son very well and, I said, no matter what, I use the line from the Cher movie, Moonstruck, where I said, no matter what you do, Ray, you're going to die.
3: <laughs> like never. he mustn't he have liked that. <laughs> no,
2: he didn't like that because he's and really he,
3: trying I not was, to die, right? Yes, he, he wants to get to the yes. moment where he can be uploaded. Yes, they're all right now, Silicon Valley. That's what they're doing. Almost
2: continue. They, yeah. They're obsessed with the idea of never dying, like yeah. not dying.
3: Well, I think guys have a particular problem with that. I yeah. don't know why. I yeah. mean, I think they are obsessed with Im- immortality. Um, perhaps in a way that I haven't noticed so much with women. I don't like to make uh, gender-based assumptions, but nevertheless... Yes, it is all men doing this. In my 60 years on this planet, I have noticed that guys are pretty keen on immortality. Immortality. Oh, we'll get to that next.
2: (laughs) We're here with uh, having a delightful discussion with Jeanette Winterson. She's the author of Frankenstein, A Love Story. It's about artificial intelligence, sex dolls, cryogenic freezing, gender, uh, homo sapiens no longer being the smartest beings on the planet. There's a lot in there uh, from a really terrific uh, fiction author.
0: Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.
1: Eurovision is here. This year's contest gets underway this week in Malmö, Sweden. But this year's contest comes with a dose of controversy. I'll give you one guess as to what people are mad about. Yes, correct. It's that.
3: Organizers of the Eurovision Song Contest say they are assessing whether Israel's entry breaks the rules on political neutrality. I think it's a shame. I think.
1: There is no way. that that Israel should be able to participate in Europe. Pro-Palestinian protesters are taking to the Swedish streets. More than a thousand Swedish artists, including Robin, have called for an Israel ban. Some European politicians are joining them. Charlie Harding from Switched on Pop joins us this week on Today Explained to help us figure out if Europe can sing its way out of this
0: situation.
2: We're here with Jeanette Winterson. She's the author of Frankenstein, a love story. She's also the author of people who know many of her books, uh, Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit, and many, many others. Talk a little bit about modern-day Britain right now. Uh, oh. You have an election coming up. You have Trump there. You're, I'm uh, sorry to prevail upon you to ask about this because we're going to get back to tech to uh, finish it out. But, wow, Britain is like— What just happened Brexit, to my country? you got Boris. He's got— like.
3: I know the mother of the mother of democracy. Britain. I know.
2: I, everyone talks about the U.S. I'm like, Britain's kind of ha- having a moment itself, kind of, and it I started it off. Everyone was like, Britain was the experimental thing for Trump, which is kind of interesting when you think about Brexit. What's it like to be there now? And the, the elections in what a couple of weeks or yes, week?
3: December twelfth. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's hope we get a hung parliament. I look. I didn't think the world was going to slide to the right in mm-hmm. the way that it has, but I think. When you disenfranchise, in in the wider sense, too many people, you're always in danger of letting fascism in because... When enough people are saying, I've got nothing to lose, right? when they have no longer a stake in, in, in civilized society. Because, Why not? Yeah, yeah. Then they will just look for the strong man. They'll look for the person, you know, with the quick headline solutions. He says, I can fix this. They don't want to look at complexity. They just feel let down by everybody. And we've pushed that too far. We've done it in Britain. You've done it in America. It's happening in Europe. Too many people don't have a stake in in what we used to call society anymore. And that's dangerous. Well, or they now know they don't, given all the abilities to communicate.
2: You know, I've always thought more communication wasn't necessarily good. You had all these gatekeepers sort of keeping... uh, keeping society on a tamp down, and now yeah. the top is off. And that's, to me, what's really happened with a lot of these. I, I'm going to get back to technology, because I do think, if you think about it, you didn't know what you didn't know, mm. and now you know. Mm. Like, And you have an ability to also communicate and also be manipulated by information mm. all at the same time. Are British people rising up about this in this, you know, the technological forces? Obviously, Boris Johnson, there's been a lot of technological uh Problems in Britain around Brexit, about misinformation, around disinformation, manipulation—is mm. the average British citizen as unaware as the average
3: American citizen about this? I hope not. I think we're a small country, right? And we, we have it's a, a fascinating a, media landscape. Yeah, and no, anyway. no, no, we've, we've got a, a, a largely right-wing press because mm-hmm. the owners of our newspapers are mainly Ruber. right-wing. The Guardian is on the left and, and, and does its best, uh, but it, it can't do it, it can't do everything. So. We, I think we are, as a country, naturally conservative. So in the past, the centre ground has worked, whether you were centre-left or centre-right. It's been quite a good place to govern from, and it's more or less managed. Mm-hmm. You know, things collapsed for us after the 2008... 2008- global crash, Mm -hmm. because then we had in uh, a coalition government that pushed hard, uh, really fearful austerity measures. Mm -hmm. And that's where a lot of people dropped out of the net. This is where the people who have nothing to lose and nothing to gain suddenly appeared. Too many of them. You can't cut social services and the welfare state safety net to the level that we did and expect people still to feel that they want to be Part of the social fabric. Sure. So we've we've that's our problem. Um, yes, people are aware of it, but I think people who voted for Brexit and who, who will now try and vote through Donald Trump really believe that there is a magic solution to all their problems. They need someone to blame, and they, for some reason they can't blame what has been ten years of Conservative Party cuts to the social fabric. Mm-hmm. They would rather blame immigrants, and they would rather blame the European Union. Look, we spend our lives looking for somebody to blame at home we always say it's not my fault you did that <laughs> you know and it's just the same in the world but it's it's about growing up and it's saying yes you know this is shit but actually am i blaming the wrong people
2: right and one of the things that i find interesting is that europe in general you're still you're still part of Europe, I think most people feel that Britain is. Yeah. has been the, been at the forefront, including your British government, around privacy issues. Obviously, Marguerite Vestager at the EU, the new head of the EU is mm. the same way, um, has been at the forefront of pushing back tech mm. and trying to control it and being concerned about issues yeah. like artificial intelligence, who has the power, who is the real – who is who needs to be regulated and not, it, which is not happening in this country. It's starting slowly now.
3: But do you think Elizabeth Warren would do it? She says she'll do it. I think
2: her even her constituents don't care about this. That, you know, here they're I more see. concerned with health care. I, I think she talks about it and has scared the bejesus out of the tech people. Mm. But I think that she, it's not like the issue that gets everybody hot and bothered. I mm. suspect it's... It, I don't even think immigration is. I think that's a false... You know, people are not... They just get... Um, misinformed into, into yeah. being upset or, or bots go crazy and then humans go crazy and stuff like that. I think healthcare and, uh, you know, a living wage and education are really the, at the heart totally, of, yeah. of what the what the issues
3: really are. And it's astonishing that we can't manage that. You know, it's going to be 2020 next year. Right. And we can't fix, you know, a basic standard of living for our citizens on this exactly. planet. And I, I think
2: that's what it is. And and income income inequality. I think that's really at the heart of that. Yeah. And, and with these technological changes, you're going to see a permanent underclass, really. And yes, I, I always say to the really wealthy people of Silicon Valley, you're either going to pay to fix this or you're going to
3: pay to armor plate
2: your Tesla that's yes. what you're going to do. Yes, like that, I think those-
3: that's a really good way of putting it because it is going to be one or the other.
2: So when you think about this, you you all do have much more of a sense of of regulating and and reigning in these these companies. Do you see them I want to finish up a little bit talking about who do you see the monsters as? And I don't think Frankenstein was a monster. Like I don't think I think mm. he was badly created, mm. right?
3: Yes, he was bad he was badly made. It was mm-hmm. a good idea. Um that went that horribly wrong. Yeah, yeah, and obviously ends up with, with 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 murder and mayhem. And the story, Mary Shelley's story, ends as a, as a tragedy. I mean, a rather beautiful tragedy with the monster and a sort of damerung of fire and the Arctic ice burning himself to death mm-hmm. after after Victor Frankenstein has also died on on board Captain Walton's ship. It's a beautiful ending. Mm-hmm. In fact, if people haven't read it for a while, I'd say you know just take some time and read it. Don't rush it. Just read it carefully and slowly. Mm-hmm. See what you think after two hundred years. I still have hope that we won't turn tech into a monster, but I do think we can only do that if, if, if tech is really shared. You know, I'm a great one for taxation. I pay a lot of tax myself. I don't have much time for people who have more money, and I'm one of them moaning about their mm-hmm. tax bill. You know, we've done fine in this world, just pay up. And certainly when it comes to Silicon Valley, both individuals and companies, mm-hmm. you know, they have the resources to help fix a lot of the social problems that they created. Right. You know, you cannot privatise the profit and nationalise the risk the mm-hmm. difficulty. Well, the they can and that's, that's what they're they doing. Do. Yeah. yeah, and I hate that. It's and I just wish that we were we were all a bit stronger and said, look, what you're doing is immoral. Uh, use the word with confidence. Just say it's immoral, it's wrong. Don't wriggle out of it. Not interested in you know your fancy ways out of this. Just put the money on the table and fix the problems you created. Mm-hmm. If they did that, you now I was I was in San Francisco recently on the book tour. I was horrified by the level of poverty, the rough sleeping. You know, I, you know, I've seen it enough in my country. But when I saw that, that, that rich, powerful city and those people struggling and suffering, I nice. thought, guys, you've got to get out here and manage this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is really. It's really quite. Yeah, a yeah. Look, I'm not pointing the finger. We've got enough problems at home. But I'm saying that if you're a responsible adult, no matter how wealthy you are, I've created a company, you owe a lot to the society that helped get you there. You know, the research and development in the universities, the roads we all use, the education mm-hmm. system that these companies depend upon to get. And the damage it's created. yeah. yeah, yeah you know, yeah. it's about not wriggling out of it and saying you know what i'm so going to i'm going to give back properly who is the victor frankenstein of this era from your perspective there isn't one person, um, because you know, obviously, for, for dramatic purposes, you focus in on an individual and follow their story, right. because that's how a good story is created. Right. Victor I don't I don't think we have a single individual doing that now. I think it's the big companies. I don't think it's governments. I think it's the big tech companies. Um, all of which are American, all the big ones, except yes. for the Chinese ones, which are yes. busy with
2: surveillance. And yeah. Well, so are the U.S. companies. And
3: again, because it's so competitive, you know, surely this is a moment in human history where we could share our resources first to save the planet which is the only real question everything right. else is a vanity project mm-hmm. you know no planet <laughs> there's yeah. nothing we're going to be able to do right um we'll go to mars in case you're interested oh yeah know. i forgot the about tech that guys that's are another going to thing mars. what is it with them with rocket ships and go, going to live in space you think guys they have outfits <laughs> what are you talking about no one likes an
2: outfit better than a nerd <laughs> <laughs> little suit, little space suit. Are you kidding? <laughs> I ran into Richard Branson on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. He was wearing a space suit. I thought, God love no. you. God love you, Richard. I <laughs> say, I didn't know what to say. I was like, you're wearing your space suit. And, okay.
3: All uh, right. Fine. Yeah. Yeah. Are you I taking th- off today? Are you going somewhere? I don't know about. <laughs> you know, these guys, look, you know, you got Bill Gates. He's so rich. He's sitting there. I think so complacent at the moment. <laughs> he really it, is. It, talking about, oh, we'll fix it by 2050. And you just think, no, we won't, Bill, because we won't be here. Right, right. Not, not, in, not in the sense that we are here now, uh-huh. As sea levels rise as the planet heats up. Uh-huh. Um, you know, you're used to it a little bit more, but you've seen the, you know, the wildfires around Los Angeles yeah. this summer. I was, again, I was in Los Angeles, and people going around, they couldn't go outside, right? And you, you haven't seen those levels, right? In your, no, country. not at all. It's, no. I think,
2: but it's sort of a slow drip. Like the Midwest is flooded. There's, mm. the, you know, what, what's really fascinating is that you don't see a lot of tech solutions for this problem. Like, there's no. just a recent announcement about carbon eating. A lot of it has to do with taking the problems and cleaning them up, but not solving the problems. Like yeah. we can get rid of carbon, we can clean up the oil spills, but it doesn't get to the oil
3: problem. No, and the big oil companies, I mean, never mind big tech, you know, the three big polluters on there, oil, gas, and actually, weirdly, after that, cement, mm-hmm. um, which is a huge yes, polluter because, we, you know, we're building with cement. We could look at that, but the fossil fuel industries, which are all subsidised industries, they are not profitable industries, Mm -hmm. and I just wish this could be said enough. Really, are going to hold on till the last drop of oil has ruined the planet. I mean, we're in Britain. We are making, we're doing more with electric cars now. Again, because we're a small country, Mm -hmm. probably we have to. And I look around America. I just think, how are you guys going to make the switch? from a fossil fuel I economy we, to an electric economy. Well,
2: it's interesting. I just wrote two columns for the New York Times about I've, I've stopped using car. I mean, I got rid of my cars. You yeah. I mean, I was making the point that someday you will not own a car. You will have car sharing. Yeah. You will, they will be so efficient that the eco, fuel economies will be better. They'll be battery driven. They'll be solar driven. And people went crazy. Did they? Crazy. Like everyone, I, I got an email from everybody in the Midwest about their trucks, their Ford F10. Do they have to keep them? I don't, yes. I was like, fine, keep your car. But I was saying that someday owning a car will be like owning a horse. Like yeah. you know, like you won't have one, yeah. and then of course Elon Musk introduces this fantastic truck thing that is all yeah with the, electric. the shattering windows. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that was
3: funny, wasn't it? But you know, you're right because in, it's we don't need everyone to do it immediately in cities. This, right, this is much simpler to do. Where everyone's and it's more be viable. Living. Sure, right. in the Midwest, it's a lot harder. Yeah. I get that. Keep your car. Yeah, but we, you know, the, it's it's really about saying not. Well, the other guy's not doing it. Why should I do it? It's changing that around and saying, well, I can do it, mm-hmm. so I will do it. Right. And then the other guy can do what the other guy can do. So it's about trying to take responsibility instead of looking, again, for someone else to blame or looking for someone else to take, to take the responsibility, take the heat. Just say, what can I do? All right. So what is your next book going to be? Is what technology? And I don't
2: know what your next book is. But what, if you had to write about some other technology, what other ones really fascinate
3: you? Well, I'm sticking with where I am now with artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. I'm doing a book of essays, actually, called Jurassic Car Park. (laughs) Um, Yeah, because I figured, you know, when the dinosaurs were around, we were lucky because we weren't. So we didn't share the planet with anything that could just wipe us out. This time, I just think once AI gets going, it'll look at us. We'll be like, you know, the Aboriginals or the Indians on the reservation. They're going to say, just give those guys a a few polluting cars and some shopping malls, shove them over there, and let them live their pathetic little lives. Yeah, so yeah. really the first essay is about that, about how, how we we will just make ourselves superannuated, uh, redundant. You, you need, need to, to
2: listen to an interview I did with Elon Musk. He actually has he had two thoughts. One was that it's not that they're they're going to hate us or have any emotion about us. They'll just treat us like house cats. That's what he I, said. I think that's right. They he, won't he have he was emotion. like, they don't no. care. And the other, then recently when I saw him, I was like, well, how's the house cat thing going? He goes, you know what? It's more like, you know how you, when people build highways and there's anthills, they don't even know they're there. They just just go over them, like you just—they're not going to. They, they may kill you, but they didn't mean to. Like it just yeah. wasn't. There was no thought to you at all. And I thought, well, that's a jolly way to put it. But it's kind of fair. It's kind of a fair way.
3: <laughs> well, we and, haven't given much thought to any other life form. No, have we? we just
2: go. Well, but why would we think of an antel would, there, when we're building a highway? Or it would be very unusual. And the other part is, of course, that we're in a simulation.
3: Yeah, we might be. I, I mean, I always
2: thought the Matrix was fabulous a fabulous film. I know, but I would love a great piece of fiction about whether we're in a simulation right now, because it really does make sense that a teenage kid from the future is screwing with us every time there's <laughs> i'm like ukraine what how did we get to the ukraine like it's got to be someone coming up with wild yeah uh, wild plots and stuff we like really that. could
3: be in a simulation but we will find that out if we are able to develop uh, artificial general intelligence right because it will know we can't do it, we can't work this out on our own right but when we if we if we can create the AI, yeah. to work. I think we will find out whether we're in one or not. Or not. Or it's you know, the crazy <laughs> thing about this is that everybody's done their best, certainly in the West, to try and get rid of the idea of a sky god. Right. And now we're inventing one. Right. Because the whole point of having the, you know, artificial general is that we'll be able to solve our problems for us, sure. tell us what to do, help us to live better, you know, manage all the things we can't manage. and When we're scared, we can ask it. And it will know all our thoughts, just like God does. Well, Google. Yes, and right so why, now. why after all this time trying to get rid of sky gods and talking about it as the sort of black superstition, uh, the worst thing that anybody can ever do? I don't mean black people; I mean just mm-hmm. the blackest part of <laughs> us that we should invent something as stupid as a religion and a sky god. Then here we are doing it again. We need answers. All right, last question: as a book author, right now, or,
2: or, 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 I don't know if you think of it that way. It's, you're a book author because you get you see, I bought. I'm reading you on my phone. Oh, are you? Um, yeah. yeah uh, it was slightly cheaper, but not really. It um, <laughs> uh, It was. It was. Fa- I was fascinated by what it costs in different sites. But right now, two things. Reality is much more interesting than fiction right now. Reality, mm. like, could you make this stuff up? And secondly, how do you look at all these digital ways that people consume? You used to write books, and then that was that, you know, and you put them out there. How do you look at that? Answer that one first, and then talk
3: about what it's like being mm. a fiction writer today. Must be like, what? Well, well, I think it's a good thing that now there are so many more platforms for mm-hmm. creativity. Um- I embrace that and I welcome it because I don't really care how you get your encounter with art. With Jeanette Whitner, yeah. Okay. With me, with anybody. I just want you to have the encounter. Mm -hmm. And when I look at the history of literacy, of mass literacy, I see that it's very small and it really only starts in the mid 19th century when lots of people learn to read. It's because of the education acts that come in. And it may be when we look back, should we be able to do so, that mass literacy might only manage to last for about 200 years. Mm -hmm. And then it will be superseded. We may be going back to a visual age, an icon age, uh, where where language itself, certainly the written language, doesn't matter so much. It's possible. Mm -hmm. Um, I think you're absolutely right. I have teenagers. They're absolutely visual. Yeah.
2: Just as informed. It's not a problem. I don't find
3: them uninformed. They're not uninformed. They're just not well-read. Really, really informed. No, they're not well-read, but they are other things. Mm-hmm. They often know a lot about movies, a, a mm-hmm. lot about News. music, a lot about TV. I mean, TV's in a golden age, as we all know. Um, so it's really, it's, well, I mean, what is reading? It's it's part of a conversation that we have. It's also part of a way of connecting with the past, so that we know what people before us felt like did. I don't just mean as information, I mean as their emotional context. Um, It also makes us feel less isolated. We know that we're not on a little raft of time that somebody Mm -hmm. else, even hundreds of years ago, felt this way, acted this way, suffered this way. Mm -hmm. Um, That's very comforting. So it it has many functions, I think, uh, reading, uh, reading books, literacy. But they probably could be replicated. And other other writers, publishers, they hate me saying this because mm-hmm. obviously they don't want to go out of business. But it's not the end of the world. Mm-hmm. You know, the end of the world will happen in all sorts of other ways, but not if we stop reading books.
2: Interesting. I read and also listened to your book. Your book listens better. Yeah. It does. Yeah. It's much more kinetic. It's a kinetic writing style. So yeah. I, 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 I found myself
3: laughing more at the red part than yeah. the unread part. Well, I is. write... Out loud. Yes, you do. Uh, yeah. So for me, it's always—it's um, it's, it's actually an audiovisual experience because I see the pictures very clearly. Exactly. So although I'm typing it out, for me, it's almost not like writing. It's like I'm telling it to you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
2: And then lastly, being a fiction writer today with all that's happening—
3: it's great. I've don't. never been a better time um, because you know the whole point about being a fiction writer is that you, you live in the world you live in and that you rework it, you reshape it, you reimagine it, but also you present it to your reader. So there's so much going on I and mean, there's no shortage of material ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, the great power of language has always been that you find the words that fit the situation, whether it's the feeling or the thought, and therefore you offer it back to the reader in the best possible form. So for me, having that possibility of language when I read other people's work, when I'm writing my own, it's, it's really to equip you, me, to describe the world and also to critique the world. You know, the more skilled you are with language, the better you can manage the way the world is. You know, it's when people have no language at all that they're going to turn the car over, throw the brick through the window, mm-hmm. just go and shoot somebody because they're just done with rage, literally. You know, you give people back language and you give them back some power over their situation.
2: Well, that is a great way to end this fantastic talk. Jeanette Winterson, thank you for coming on the show. She's the author of a new book. I highly recommend it called Frankenstein, A Love Story. It's about Frankenstein, but not in the future. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Eric Anderson, is at Eric America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey E S J. Jeanette, where can people find you online?
3: They can find me at JeanetteWinterson.com. All right. And do you, do you use Twitter? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter as well. What if do you, you do? Just, just go in uh, Jeanette Winterson or Winterson World, right. yeah. you'll find my tweets. I don't do it crazy. That's okay. Don't worry about
2: it. We got we got plenty of people who do that. Okay. If you like this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend and make sure to check out our newest podcast, Reset. Just search for it in your podcasting app of choice or tap the link in the show notes. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Robbie. Thank you for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back. Here on Friday. Tune in
1: then. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously, hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month, taxes and fees included. That's right, $25 a month every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com.